Hey everybody, welcome to episode number nine of the Visions and Tones podcast. This episode is about womanism. However, we discuss aspects of feminism and inter- intersectional feminism next to womanism. My guest today is Nikki Black, whom in her own words, she is a native and a lifelong resident of Los Angeles in California. She's a mom, an artist, a born sociologist, a womanist, an intersectional feminist, and an abolitionist. I mean, to me, Nikki is actually also a great communicator and I love her work and I know that this episode will definitely teach us something. I wish you receive it with great curiosity than just, you know, the intent to debate. So this interview took place via Zoom and my team and I worked hard to try to give you the best sound as possible and I know that you'll enjoy this. So, ladies and gentlemen, Nikki Black. Welcome, Nikki, to the Visions and Tones podcast, finally. Thank <laughs> Good you. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. And I'm so grateful that you invited me to have this conversation today. I'm really honored. I'm excited. I've been looking forward to learn more about womanism and feminism and that's actually the, the, the topic, you know, for, for, for today. So maybe just to, to kick start, I know that every time this is like almost the opening question, how, how would you say womanism is to feminism? Hmm. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, Alice Walker uh, said that womanism is to feminism as purple is to lavender, right? That's the, the famous quote. Um, and so really what people don't understand about feminism is that black women brought a feminist ethic with them to the Americas, um, you know, in the transatlantic slave trade. Um, we know that uh, matrilineal matriarchal societies are not, you know, something that we just imagined or that are fiction, but that's something that predates, you know, um, modern times um, and is, is and has been in existence in Africa. So um, Black women were really, really essential to the creation of what we know today as feminism. And it is because feminism was really co-opted by uh, women that were a part of the ruling class, you know, as a means to expand their privilege. Right. Um, not necessarily st- seeking to um, be in right relationship with the earth or other people that were being oppressed or to improve the quality of life um, for, you know, women, African women who were enslaved, um, indigenous women who were being oppressed and, you know, enduring, not surviving genocide. Um, right. And so womanism was a natural progression because if it's one thing that Black people are, it is innovators. And so um, 
And that is, I think, central to womanism too. It's about carrying on and making a way out of no way. And so no matter how much we are oppressed, we continue to actually use that oppression to create, to innovate new things and to be more creative and to be more tenacious and to get more education and to, you know, continue to excel and to thrive. And so womanism was just a a natural, you know, progression as Black women were trying to reclaim space, um, you know, in terms of conversations about freedom and body autonomy and, you know, all of those things that we maybe associate with feminism. Right, right. So for, for one who might think that womanism is sort of a, a critique, maybe a soft critique to feminism, what, what would you say? And I'm asking this question simply because many scholars of womanism emphasize the fact that, you know, feminism is more exclusionary, whereas womanism you know, it's more inclusionary and it's more of an intersectional sort of uh, approach, uses an intersectional approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think that womanism, first of all, womanism is really Black women minding their business. Right. And if we we look at it like that, so like feminism has turned into, once again, um, like I said, gaining gaining comforts, expanding your privilege, um, and always, always comparing yourself to men and always seeking to hold the power of men and be like men and just as like men. Whereas womanism doesn't care about that, really. It asks, is this right? Is this, I don't, I don't necessarily need to hold power like men because is that power corrupt? Is that who I want to be in the world? There's a strong spiritual um, and ethical uh, component to womanism. And that is actually what feminism doesn't really have unless you're um, talking about feminist theology. Right. Um, But just secular, you know, feminism that we understand in terms of like the suffrage movement and freeing the nipple and, you know, reproductive rights there isn't really any conversation about the spiritual component of um, human existence and even um, oftentimes conversations about, you know, uh, the earth are not, you know, the, the environment and the earth and care for it is central to womanism. So um, it is definitely a more intersectional approach and it really seeks to empower the most marginalized, the most impacted, um, the most oppressed um, groups or person in the room. Mm -hmm. So um, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw um, has coined the term intersectionality, which is just a way that we look at, you know, how your um, identities intersect. And those intersections are spaces where you enjoy privilege and also places where you may be um, experiencing oppression. And so when we talk about, you know, privilege, I have, I have privilege. I have a lot of privilege. I got class privilege. Yeah. I have cisgender privilege. I have able body privilege. I can go on and on and on and on with all the privileges that I do have. And so, but when I examine that, I need to look at those and say, these are spaces where I can intervene with 
oppression. These are these are situations in which I can give up my spot for somebody else that doesn't have the privilege that I hold. I'm observing out in the world that there's no closed captioning or no ramps for wheelchairs, or there is no one here that is speaking on behalf of, you know, transgender um, issues, or there, there are only skinny bodies in this space. There are only, you know, so, so let me speak up in my position of holding some power. Um, let me, let me try to leverage that. And that's not in like, being a voice for these people that supposedly can't speak because that is, that is also false. Right. It's about passing the mic and or moving aside so that other people can take up space. And I'm not always going to be the most oppressed person in the room. That's, that's not always going to be the case. Sometimes it's going to be an indigenous woman. Sometimes it's going to be someone in an English speaking space where English is not their first language or their, their language at all. Like, I'm, I'm not always going to be the most oppressed person in the space and being constantly aware of that and, and helping to empower other people. Right, right. I love what you say, uh, Nikki. I'm, I'm curious also understanding the fact that womanism is a black woman's voice and at the same time, as, as, opposed, to, as opposed to feminism, womanism sort of also sees the need to, to some extent, sort of protect black men particularly because of race reconciling us. And I'm wondering as a black man, what, what role would you say I have within the womanist uh, 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 movement? Um, yeah. If mm-hmm. ever I should have a voice. And I'm asking this because for some, I don't know how, how things are on the other side, but I know that, you know, most black radical feminists in South Africa and some of those I came across here in Australia, they sort of opposed to a man trying to be a voice for a woman because of the inside outside perspective. So, mm-hmm. so I'm trying to understand from, from a woman's perspective, do I have space and to, how should I embrace womanism, especially if I feel like it is a movement that I sort of agree with many things that it's mm-hmm. advocates for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, I would always say um, it's good for us to reflect on, in the spaces where we're oppressed, how we would prefer that people interact with us. And so um, if you start thinking about white people, how would you want a white person that says they're an ally or seeking to be an ally to interact in these spaces where we're trying to liberate black people? Um, So I think that right there is just super shortcut. Um, (laughs) Because you don't need talking over you. You want them to defer to you, that you want them to understand that your lived experience is actually very, very valid and actually trumps all the little books they read and all the little rallies they went to. That's cute, very cute. But (laughs) I have this ancestral knowledge and I have this uh, lived experience. So pipe down. Um, and I think that, you know, that's that's number one. It's it's not about excluding men from mm. the space or the conversation, because as you stated, a lot of the work that women womanists are doing and and intersectional feminists as well mm. is centered on, you know, safety and equity and equality for black men, you know. And so mm. um, I think that when we consider that, once again, womanism is an ethic. And so 
you know, with that spiritual component Um, and not necessarily claiming to be a thing because my my feathers get ruffled when, you know, people come into a space and they say, you know, yes, I'm a this ally, I'm a that ally. But the group didn't actually name you that. They didn't say right. that. This, this this is a title you put on yourself. You let the group determine. Right. You know, th- how dare I say I'm a, I'm a trans ally? D- d- they, they need <laughs> to tell me. And, and, and whatever I'm doing doesn't need to be for the sake of me getting that title. It needs to be because it's the right thing to do. If they want to bestow me with, you know, a title or some sort of space and trust, that is an honor. That is not my right. And if I never get it, then that doesn't mean I stop doing the work. So, you know, I, I, I just, I feel that it is good to embody the ethic and understand that this is not necessarily the space for you. And, um, but you can take, you know, a lot of the frameworks um, and the methodologies that are being used within this ethic that you value so that you can um, improve your own, for your relationship with women, the earth um, and other men, how you relate to other men. I, I would love to see more men doing more work with men. And right. that is not my place to do because I'm not a man. So I can't come in and tell you, oh, well, you guys need to start doing like this and do that with each other and your relationships and this, that, and the third. I mean, you know, that, there's plenty of work to do in that space and it's not my work to do. So mm-hmm. um, that is my personal you know, opinion on that. And lots of times, and I think that, you know, women are very just wary of men as black people are and indigenous people are of, you know, white people coming in saying that you are, and then you're, you're really not, your actions don't align with what you stated. Um, And now I'm looking at the impact of your actions being harmful. Um, you know, I I don't know. Just just do the work. <laughs> just just do it, and and let that be that. I, I like what you said. You you find with men doing more work with men, and and I want to ask you, to what extent does womanism sort of problematize masculinity? Is the issue really masculinity or toxic masculinity? Because I, I think from the from the feminist perspective. You know, there are part of women who just see masculinity as a problem than particularly toxic masculinity. How does how does womanism speak to masculinity? Masculinity can can exist. Um, Womanists are not in the business of comparing ourselves to men or Mm -hmm. seeking, you know, like that's not the measuring stick for greatness and success for us. So. It's not my business. Um, (laughs) It it really isn't. It really isn't the standard. We're not chasing some male standard of power um, and and knowing and existence. Um, Toxic masculinity is perfectly descriptive. It is Mm -hmm. masculinity that is distorted. Um, 
it is masculinity that, you know, doesn't have any care concern for other people. Sometimes actually frequently itself. Mm. It's destructive. Um, and so there's space for masculinity. <laughs> Just like there's space for everything else. The problem is that in society, we have normalized toxic masculinity and made it the standard for manhood. This one dimensional, the only emotion I have is anger. That right. only, you know, I can't, you know, I can't enjoy things. You know, I see this on the internet all the time. Like, and it'll literally be stuff like heated seats, heated seats in a car. That's gay. Why would I? You can't have a heated seat like it's cold outside. That's this idea that men have to sleep on the ground with a rock or a pillow and never enjoy anything. You can't like flowers and you can't like music and you can't, you know, like that is that is not (laughs) the way that life, I believe, um, was meant to be experienced by anyone. You all are whole people with emotions that run the gamut Mm. and a a variety of life experiences and preferences and Mm. toxic masculinity doesn't allow you to embrace that and be complete people and be emotionally healthy. Mm. Um, And so ultimately I would say what womanism wants for men is to enjoy a, a life of complexity and to embrace your full humanity um, and be, you know, the greatest expression of a man, you know, or a human being that you possibly can be fully actualized, you know, whole person. Um, And that's it. That's it. And whatever that means for you is what it means for you. But to have this standard um, that, you know, men only do this and it's the same for women only do this, you only have children, you only have these certain types of careers, that's a lie, that's false. Yeah. Yeah. I like the fact that earlier on you mentioned that you are an intersectional feminist, if I I can recall very well. What what is the difference between a black feminist and a black radical feminist? Because because I I tend on hearing this black radical feminist uh, notion coming up, what's the difference? I think that black radical feminism just has a very um, radical black component to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can be, there are a variety of feminists, you know, there are trans exclusionary feminists, there are white feminists that, Mm -hmm. you know, really is just, you know, a a feminism that isn't inclusive um, and, and, and asserts that white women are the default. Um, and not just white women, but, you know, able-bodied, uh, yeah. you know, middle class to rich, you know. Um, and so I specify that I am intersectional um, because that needs to be stated, right. you know, because people's idea of uh feminism is one in which even for instance you know a feminist wouldn't take her husband's last name i would (laughs) that's not not a standard for feminism for me it's about having the choice to Mm -hmm. it's it's not about me interpreting what is proper and correct for another woman to do or you know a feminist wouldn't 
enjoy Beyonce or wouldn't wear a miniskirt because mm-hmm. she's objectifying herself. A feminist might, I, you know, <laughs> she can. She can feel empowered in wearing less clothes. She can also feel empowered in covering up. And right. that choice to decide what, how we want to, you know, show up in the world. Um, so I would say that that's it for me. You know, just me minding my own business once again and making sure that when I'm talking about rights for women and when I'm talking about equity and equality, I'm not excluding any women. I'm not saying, oh, this for me and women like me, but not for the baby mamas. Right. Not for the sex workers. Not for this group of women over here. No, for all the women. For for the trans women, for, for all the women. Um, And that I'm constantly looking at, you know, how my own practices and my own ideologies and ideas and the way that I'm showing up are impacting other women that aren't like me. Hmm. How would you say, I like what you you say about uh, intersectional feminism. How would you say people outside the U.S. should actually receive feminism and much more womanism. And, and I'm asking about this because, particularly on womanism, because I think it's still much more, as far as I'm concerned, and I could be wrong about this, and, and I'll, I'll take the correction, it seems like it's more of, you know, a movement which is very active in, in the U.S., as far as I'm concerned, I speak, I speak a lot with my, you know, friends um, in South Africa and across here, and I ask them more about womanism and, and what's the understanding of womanism. How would you say it should actually be, be, be received? Should it look similar to womanism in the U.S., or it should, it should, it should, it can take any sort of shape as long as it still, be, be, you know, uh, remains a black woman's voice? Yeah, first of all, it needs to remain a Black woman's voice. It is a Black woman's tradition. It is something that we have actually inherited from our foremothers. When you look at earliest or, or early uh, womanist theologians, um, because it is a theological uh, ethic. It started, you know, the Black church being central, but also um, literature is really, really important. And so there is a legacy of literature um, and so Zora Neale Hurston being, you know, an example of someone that was incredibly influent, influential to um, a lot of early womanists. And considering that womanism is like a newer thing from the 80s. So it's not, you know, it, it doesn't even predate me really in its, <laughs> in right. its um, very formal, um, you know, formation and where literature was starting to be written and created that specifically had the title of like womanist. Um, So Zora Neale Hurston and Ida B. Wells, and of course, Alice Walker. So there's a heavy literature um, component to it. And then once again, the spiritual aspect um, and understanding that that is like, that's legacy. That's, That's black woman family. (laughs) <laughs> you know, right, right. Um, <clears throat> and respecting it as such. The way that it is uh, used or in, not interpreted, but used um, as a tool for liberation, 
for women and other people all over the world is, of course, going to be dependent upon the circumstances in that particular location. So I can't speak for, you know, women in South Africa because that's not my experience and I am not the authority there. (laughs) Um, And that's the beautiful thing about womanism and intersectional feminism. It allows you to not be the authority for you to step back and say, it's not my place to say what to do under your particular in your social system and hierarchy and your government and the way that you do things here. Mm. Um, And so it's a framework once again, and it's not necessarily one size fits all. You modify, you know, and make use of the parts that are going to be the most beneficial to you in that moment as you're trying to, you know, liberate yourself and other people around you. Right. Let's let's talk about self-critique. To to what extent does womanism self-critique, so to say, if there's any need or correct a voice of a woman who might be sort of bringing it, you know, tarnishing or bringing disrepute into the movement in itself? I'm asking this question in the sense that for some of my black sisters, for instance, if I have sort of a chat with them, particularly those who, who identify as feminists, as black radical feminists, if, if you talk to them about how it is said for feminism that if a woman can come and sort of say she's been sexually harassed by, let's say, Tony, for heaven's sake, uh, 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 for argument's sake, and then later on, Tony gets acquitted. It just discovered that it was maybe false claims and whatnot. And I said to some of my sisters, I feel like it's sad that even after the black sisters were behind the victim, so to say, in this case, uh, helped the victim, supported the victim, but at the same time tarnished the name of Tony, then later on, Tony gets acquitted. The black sisters do not sort of come back to sort of rectify that issue, to sort of even speak to uh, uh, the sister who may have made the claims that Tony sexually harassed him or whatever the case. Mm-hmm. And also they don't come back to sort of help Tony uh, move from whatever low he may have dropped as a result of the claims. But that kind of a reflection, to what extent would you say, is, is there even a need? First, maybe that should be the question. And then secondly, to what extent does womanism have that kind of a reflection sort of to make sure that the movement doesn't get, doesn't degenerate from what it is intended to be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Well, you know, in, within this movement, there's no one leader. So there's, you know, there are many mm-hmm. different people um, all over the world. Um, and, and as the, the frame as as the ideologies, um, you know, within womanism, are um, adopted and put into use. Of course, the interpretations can change, and the way that you know <clears throat> it manifests um, can be quite different. It's good, like like language, constantly evolving. Like language changes like every single day. Um, and so it's the same, you know, with a lot of these principles and the practice of womanism. And so that can be difficult, right? Because there's no leader, <laughs> there's no central authority. But I think that what you do see in womanism, at least here in the United States, and um, is a lot of 
uh, womanists also happen to be abolitionists. And a part of the abolitionist uh, framework is uh, restorative justice and transformative justice. And it really seeks to repair harm that is caused within communities um, and doing this in a way that uh, humanizes everyone mm -hmm. involved um, and, you know, really emphasizing um, the, our relationships. And so using um, the example that you put forth, yeah, that's, that's tough, right? Because we believe black women, right? right. Believe women. Um, but then, you know, later, um, if it's found that the man that is accused, um, you know, maybe what didn't, didn't do what he was accused of, um, it is my hope that, that we would um, then activate uh, transformative and restorative justice measures um, within that situation to try to resolve and make, make whole, you know, um, repair the the harm caused to the person. And so that's really where it's important to be in community with people. You can't, um, you know, be an abolitionist. You can't want to defund and disarm the police or, you know, any of these things if you don't want to talk to your neighbors, if you don't want to be able to um, interact with people and if you have no desire to resolve conflict and gain those skills. Um, and so I feel like that is really, really central to, you know, what's going on. My partner is a part of a group in which they they hold each other accountable for things that happen. And there have been some major things that have come up and they've sat down with each other within this group to, you know, practice transformative and restorative justice amongst themselves. Um, and so I think that in those particular instances, like, of course, no one's perfect. So there are going to be people mm -hmm. that act out of trauma and, you know, maybe being underdeveloped in some ways um, and immature and may very well just walk away from the situation like, okay, no apology, no effort to rectify the situation or make you whole. Um, that is certainly not, that, that is not the way that anything should be handled within the framework of womanism. Um, and so I think that that's challenging for people, um, especially as we've been conditioned, especially as women to avoid conflict, um, as we are so invested in the good, bad binary and, mm -hmm not just for other people, but for ourselves. So we don't want to confront our own missteps. It's hard for us to apologize. It's hard for us to admit that we're, we're wrong. But I, I see within this movement um, an effort to normalize all of that. Normalizing saying like, I misspoke. Um, I was wrong. I apologize. Um, asking how you can care for the person, um, what would be best, what does the person need as opposed to what you believe they need. Um, and so in trying to bring opposing parties together so that within the community, so that there can be some sort of understanding that everyone comes to 
um, so that ultimately, you know, we can we can have peace in this situation and everyone can feel that they are cared for and, and heard. Right, right. Does, does, does womanism ever practice cancel culture? <laughs> cancel culture <laughs> in account, as in accountability, as in, you know, there, there's a lot of conversation around cancel culture mm. um, lately. And I feel like really the only people that have a problem with cancel culture are the people that feel like they might be in danger of being canceled. Um, <laughs> that's what it looks like. It looked like the only people crying are the people that look a little bit suspect or or something. I I feel <laughs> like I feel like we are all on the edge, right? Because we are imperfect. We right. we all are in practice and learning how to be better people. Um, I was trash in my early like, there were some things that I did I was like I look back and I'm like that wasn't right what were you doing <laughs> the right, way you right. handled that person that was rude that was you know certainly not the way that I would want to show up in the world um, as I reflect so I guess I could have been canceled many times you know by various groups of people um, but there is calling in and I think that people are trying to activate that, um, calling people in as opposed to calling them out. Um, there is canceling, <laughs> which is absolutely a thing that I believe we need to reserve the right to do because there are some people that are consistently problematic. Right. And, and, they, and they are unrepentant in it. And so whether or not somebody gets canceled typically has to do with their attitude as they were being called out or called in and whether or not this is a pattern of behavior for them. Mm. Um, and so simultaneously, we have seen how unforgiving people are of black women, um, how we are willing to forgive men. We're willing to forgive white people. We're willing to forgive all of these people, but we won't forgive black women. So I think that we need to be concerned with cancel culture as far as black women are concerned. Um, but I think that all of this is a conversation about, once again, how we are showing up um, fully actualized, you know, how we are maturing and how we are caring for each other and for ourselves and being compassionate and gracious and kind toward each other and ourselves. And if people have a genuine apology, if people truly didn't know and were coming mm -hmm. from a place of lack of experience or education in a particular area, and they are willing to do what they need to do to be in right relationship with the people that they harmed, then I have not personally seen, you know, this judgment to cancel them. Right. I haven't personally seen or experienced that. Um, so yeah, there's some people that you just can't, you're not going to be able to bring everybody in to what I call an equitable and just society. You're n everybody's not going to make it into it. Mm. And that's just a fact because they don't want to be a part of it. Everybody is not going to make it into a peaceful society because they are not peaceful. Right. And so 
what is the answer? You know, sadly, we have to work out some other um, solutions for handling situations where people don't don't want to be a part of that. Um, yeah, so I I don't have a problem with can- cancel culture. I, I I personally feel that cancel culture is a little bit of a um, a trauma response because people have been getting away with things for so long mm-hmm. that. It, it can it ha- can and has sometimes turned into a reflex because people are just tired of being victimized and exploited and, you know, treated poorly and dehumanized. Um, I, I think that as we all kind of recondition ourselves um, and, and, and are socialized into, like I said, a more humane, compassionate, gracious, um, way of being with each other, then some of that that guard can come down, and then we can extend a little bit more grace to each other and really try to work together to, um, you know, to to be um, forgiving and and also making sure that we are once again caring for the people that are being harmed in situations or the people that are being marginalized or erased or silenced. Um, yeah. Can, can you please expand the the calling out, the calling in versus the calling out? I think I, I like I like something there. Yeah, calling out is can be as simple as saying like, "Oh, that was ableist." <laughs> mm-hmm. You so <laughs> you so racist, and that doesn't offer any anything. <laughs> it's just right. like, okay, you just told me that I just did something wrong. Right. Whereas calling in, calling in requires a lot of emotional labor mm-hmm. and everyone doesn't feel like performing that labor, nor should they be made to. Um, and so it's about everybody playing their position, right? And mm-hmm. I may not have it for you today. I may just have a call out for you today, but maybe somebody else has, you know, okay, well, let's look at what you said or look at what you did, and this is how it's problematic. And here are some other ways that you could... Um, calling in is more of a coaching situation, right. and it can be done one-on-one, and sometimes it's groups of people that will, um, you know, literally, you know, well, figuratively, <laughs> I guess it could be literally too, will we'll embrace a person, if you will, you know, like we'll, we'll come around the person and try to um, try to to help them to really re, re, reframe their understanding right. um, and to develop some skills to um, show up in the space in a way that is less harmful. I mean, in a case where one has probably a black woman has always, you know, been badly treated. And sometimes you happen to come across Tony who says something, but it's out of probably being less informed than Tony being a problematic person always. I'm Mm -hmm. just thinking about how calling out can, I know that you, you mentioned that sometimes people res, you know, respond out of trauma or whatnot, but I'm thinking if, if it's the first time sort of Tony said something, it's out of line, out of being less informed. I'm thinking on how 
calling out can actually also be a bit of a danger, so to say. Should we should we focus more on that, or it's we always have to understand that you know sometimes people are tired, you know, receiving the same treatment and whatnot. Therefore, they do not have the time to think whether are you, you know, is it the first time Tony you saying this, or, or mm-hmm. you just generated problematic, or, or whatever the case. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's absolutely. Um, Sadly, we don't all, you know, have a detailed history of, you know, everyone's experiences and we don't have this this ongoing relationship. We may be just encountering somebody um, for the first time and it takes discernment to um, determine, you know, how you want to um, react to people. Um, I... I try to be as kind <laughs> and, and mind you, <laughs> kindness is not a performance, right? Yeah. Kindness is not, kindness is, is genuine. And actually it may be kind for me to call you out because I could just let you keep on and, mm-hmm. and then you meet the right one that, <laughs> that, is, <laughs> that is actually the wrong one. <laughs> so let me say something to you so that you don't go out into the world and right. then get hurt. Um, so I try to be kind, um, and I try to, as I said, extend grace because (laughs) there, but for the grace of God, go I, I have also been problematic. I may be problematic today and on tomorrow as well. Um, Mm -hmm. this is a process and a journey, um, as, as we are learning more about, you know, people that are not like us and don't, Mm -hmm. don't have the same experiences. Um, and so, um, yeah, I feel like it's good to just approach in that manner. And But I admit that I do have, I have more patience for some people than I have for others. Um, and it is because of, for many different reasons. And I'm also often factoring in the likelihood of they, that they were socialized in a certain way. Right. Um, and so when I'm dealing with other oppressed and marginalized people, I'm going to have a little bit more grace for you because you too have been under the thumb of, you know, colonialism or, Mm. you know, uh, patriarchy and misogyny or whatever it is. Um, I had, I've actually had a few Facebook friends that I've let them be my friends for years and I've let them participate in conversations for years and people would have canceled them a long time ago and would have unfriended them and blocked them a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And I let them continue to show up in the space so that I could continue to try to correct them and so that other people could educate them. And in almost every case, they have gotten themselves canceled. After years, you know, and these were uh, the two that come to mind are black men. But you understand why I was like, I see you make progress. I would see them take a step forward, but then they would take like three back. <laughs> and I'd be oh. like, how did we, we were doing so good last week. And it mm. looked like you were on your way and then here you are regressing. And so, um, you know, it's really, really tough. But I think that we do have to, without overextending ourselves, and without wearing ourselves out um, and harming ourselves, we do have to try to create spaces in which we can, you know, um, try to be 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 tender with each other and and help people because people really do have the uh, 
ability to change. They they really do. Um, and so the same way we got this way, we got this way through indoctrination and, and, and being socialized. No one came into this world, you know, a misogynist. No one came into this world racist. You were socialized into it. Um, and so it's this hope that, you know, we will be able to um, give education and support um, around, you know, really transforming um, a lot of our ideas and the ways we interact with each other. But simultaneously, Audrey Lord said, if I speak to you in anger, at least I have spoken to you. So there's always wow. that. Like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes wow. people just don't have time for your foolishness. Mm-hmm. And that is a part of the reason too, why it is just such a gift. And we, we should not ever take it for granted when black women are sharing knowledge because we have a lot we're dealing with and, and that we would take time out of our day to offer, you know, some sort of education, to tell you a book that you can read, to direct you to a website, um, to share a quote with you. That's far above and beyond <laughs> anything right. that we need to do um, as we are on this journey through this world. So, um, yeah, you know, I try to have compassion in my heart um, for people, but also that is a part of the reason why. It is important for men to be accountable and to be accountable to each other and for themselves so that they can step in. It is important for white people to be accountable to themselves and to each other so that they can step in. So that when you see a person going back and forth with a black person as a white person, or you don't have to be white, you can be Latinx or you can be Asian or whatever, but you're going back and forth with somebody and you see your cousin, basically, you need to come and collect your cousin when you, when you see a man going <laughs> wow. back and forth with a woman, you need to come and collect your brother so that this woman, this per, this marginalized, oppressed person doesn't have to perform all of this emotional labor and this knowledge production to try to help get this person on the right path. That is not, that's not our, that's not my goal in my life. I want to retire. I don't, I don't ever want to have to teach anybody anything ever right. again. Um, so, so yeah, when we can do that, that's really, really helpful. Just maybe two, three questions and then we can wrap, Nikki. Um, looking at the current gender discourse and events, looking at the ever-growing gender-based violence, domestic violence, femicide, what, what would you say the woman's the womanist intervention is within these whole events? Um, I think the womanist intervention is to once again be concerned with itself and to understand that people that cause harm, you know, abusers and 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 people that are going to, you know, murder, whatever, molest, rape, whatever, we can't wait on them to decide that they are going to suddenly not cause harm to people. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you know, so it's not so much for me um, as a woman, it's about what the perpetrator is doing. And obviously there's work to do in that space for sure, but it's about equipping women to do what they need to do. Um, rallying around and supporting those women 
making sure that they have access to resources, that they are able to, you know, seek safety, that they are able to, and this is the reason why, you know, education is so important because, I mean, we all know all the studies about all the times when education is introduced to women and how it actually elevates the the status, the quality of life for the entire society, not just for the women, but their whole family. Same thing with, you know, like microloans and everything. Like, mm. you know, we we will share that money amongst our community or we pass it around in our community and it will circulate um, and improve the finances of really everyone when you put your resources into women. Um, and so to me, that's what womanism is about. It's about having, you know, self-determination um, or, or um, I, think, I believe it was Zora Neale Hurston who wrote about, no, I think it was actually Alice Walker, um, unction, this, this drive, this determination within oneself to keep on persevering um, despite, you know, being um, abused or, or exploited. Um, and so that is really the role of womanism. Um, and once again, it's an ethic of care. So looking at our communities and saying, hey, there's a single mom here, you know, who, who needs some help with some diapers or transportation or childcare. Here, here, you know, maybe is a, a, a elderly grandpa who, mm. you know, needs some transportation um, or some food in their home? How can we care for these people um, who are being impacted by systemic injustice as well as interpersonal violence? Um, and try to remove them from the situation and then their other, um, other ideologies and other political movements to deal with the harm and to deal with the... Um, the, the, I want to say the, the, the carceral, you know, component, the justice seeking component. Um, then we have other, other movements to kind of try to deal with the person that is causing the harm. Does, mm-hmm. does, uh, I just had this thought now, woman doesn't believe in the, you know, online sort of publication of allergic rapists or, or whatnot as a form of justice towards the black woman? I don't feel like that's necessarily a womanist uh, ethic. I don't, I don't know that doxing or outing or whatever, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily know that that womanism is going to try to protect the woman right. and to protect the women in the community. And so... I don't know how beneficial it is um, or how strategic it is or, you know, if it causes additional harm to, you know, oh, here's our list of rapists. Like, that is not something that, you know, there's a there's a lot to be considered in terms of what what would be ethic uh, an ethic um, that would be, you know, correct. To, um, to employ in that situation. I can't see myself personally doing that. Um, so yeah, that, that, that is not something that I necessarily know is, is aligned with womanism as, you know, as a movement. 
Nikki, thank you very much for your time. Um, before we wrap, I just have to ask you this. Any, any of your work that you would recommend to people out there, uh, particularly about womanism, that they can either listen to, watch, or read, and any other potential books that you can sort of uh, recommend for people to read about womanism? Oh, um, well, books about womanism. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, as far as books, I mean, you know, Katie Cannon and Emily Towns and they're all and, and, and Dolores S. Williams. There's there's a whole, you know, like I said, there's this rich lineage of uh, womanist theologians um, that have, you know, books, Sisters in the Wilderness being one of the texts that, you know, uh, people look to and um, A Sister Away by Renita Weems. And um, like I said, Zora Neale Hurston is, is lauded as, you know, an early womanist, even without that language. And of course, Alice Walker, a lot of times when people ask me, you know, about a womanist text, I'm like, well, have you read The Color Purple? You could Color just, purple. you could just, Start at the color purple and you would be doing great right there. Um, so, you know, there's always that. Um, in Sorry, terms between, of between the color purple, between the color purple and in search of our mother's gardens, which one would you say speaks more or do they both, you know, emphasize well, both, more on women? Both. Yeah. Both. Um, yeah. Both of them are seminal text, right. And foundational for womanism. So, right. I would say not to make a choice between the two. And then, of course, there are um, incredible iconic women such as Bell Hooks and, you know, Angela Davis, um, who have written extensively, um, not necessarily specifically about womanism, but as, in terms of Black feminism um, and really contextualizing, you know, um, the Black experience within feminism which is really, really important concept to grasp, right? Um, and so I would say definitely exploring any and all work that you can get from, from these women. Um, and then Halos on Afros um, is a book that I co-wrote with hip hop womanist scholar Ebony Janice. It's Halos on Afros, Radical Black Feminist and Womanist Thoughts on the Divine. So obviously a womanist text. And so... Yeah, there's, there's, there's plenty. There's plenty. You never run out of anything to read um, if you want to learn more about womanism and Black feminism. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nikki, for agreeing to have this chat oh, with me. Yeah. And I, I'll definitely try to get the one, Hell is an Offerance, the one you co-authored. Um, I'd love to actually read more of that. And thanks for your time. Um, hope we can chat sometime soon again. Do you have any closing remarks for us? I really don't. <laughs> I feel like I've talked a lot today. So <laughs> I'm actually very tired. But no, I so appreciate, um, you know, you inviting me here um, and just being able to contribute my perspective and my voice. Of course, um, Blackness is not monolithic. So, you know, there are a multiverse of Black experiences and Black women experiences. Um, and even within these movements of feminism and womanism, there's there's a multiverse. So I'm but one contributor 
Um, and so I just, I, I'm just really, really always appreciative and, and honored to be able to, you know, express. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Nikki Black. We are out. <laughs>